Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So Mr. Larson is a San Francisco native, graduate of Columbia University in New York with a BA in history and a master's in international affairs. He was a reporter for Wall Street Letter, a staff writer for Corporate Finance Magazine, editor of Asset International, and managing editor, editor of plan sponsor, the leading monthly magazine for North American pension executives, which I'm sure we'll discuss at great length this evening. Um, he's also written for Z Magazine, The Nation, uh, Institutional Investor, and CFO, to name a few. Uh, tonight's book that we're going to be dis discussing is People's Pension, The Struggle to Defend Social Security Since Reagan, which is an in-depth look at the decades-long attempt to dismantle or diminish Social Security. Please welcome Mr. Larson. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, what's that? Any pertinent comments inside? No, it's just, it's just really nice. That's <laughs> um, okay, so uh, uh, welcome and thanks for coming out. Um, I should say that I um, am really pleased to be hosted by Skylight. And I was looking through the schedule and I actually want to recommend two other writers who are going to be here soon. Uh, one is Carlo Romano who has a new book called America the Philosophical. And if you've ever read his, his stuff, it's really interesting and insightful and that would, I'm sure will be great. <clears throat> and then uh, there's going to be another talk on a uh, connected with a new collection of film criticism by Vito Russo. The late Vito Russo is a great film historian. Um, and I'd highly recommend that too. If I was going to be in town, I would go to both of those. So anyway, I'm glad to be here. And um, just to, to kind of introduce this, um, what I'm doing, I've written a book called The People's Pension, uh, which is a history of the Social Security debate that started 30 years ago after the election of Reagan. Uh, and for a lot of us, that is really, um, this debate has been going on all of our adult lives, or maybe even all of our lives. So this is a, this is sort of an issue that's, that's, that's become sort of a permanent part of the American political process. Um, it's a fairly big book. You would see that if we had a copy of it here. Um, and I do get asked, why did I write it? And um, can I boil it down? Can I boil the story down to a few sentences? In other words, what's the basic conflict here? What are we talking about when we talk about the social security debate? What's the story? The answer to the first question is that I wrote it because I think this is probably the most important domestic political uh, policy issue of our time. Social security is the, 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 the cornerstone of the New Deal, the, the welfare state, and uh, basically, in, in my view anyway, um, you get rid of social security and any public commitment in this country to social and economic justice is probably gone. It's as simple as that. Um, the answer to the second question, what's the story, I can boil down to basically one word, and that word is taxes. Um, 
Okay, to sort of unpack that for a second, the, <clears throat> the fascinating and appalling thing that I find about the social security debate is it's built on a kind of a denial of reality. Um, the biggest part of social security is, the, the thing we actually call social security usually when we talk about it, is, is, is an old age income support system. Um, now, why is that important today? It's important because the population of America is aging. Um, this is a fact. Uh, as a society, we'll have to spend more money to support the elderly in the decades ahead. Uh, we can reduce this slightly uh, here and there by doing some things more efficiently, for example, by having a rational national health care system. Uh, but even, uh, even then, the cost is going to go up. Uh, so there's no getting around the fact that we're going to have to spend more money as a society on the elderly in the decades ahead. Um, but most of the ideas to balance Social Security's books in the future, make it pay for itself, which is what the Social Security debate is supposed to be about, um, would do so by cutting the program so severely that it would be reduced to insignificance within a couple of decades. Otherwise, spending on the, if, if, if that's not done, on the other hand, spending on the aged is going to go up, and taxes eventually will have to go up to accommodate this. Um, now, this runs into another political reality, which is that over the past 35 years, beginning with the Carter administration, not the Reagan administration, but the Carter administration, the 1%, as they're called these days, have managed to construct a very favorable climate for themselves in this country, a regime of low income taxes uh, for the top percentiles, low taxes on dividends and capital gains, which is where they derive most of their income. And even though corporate taxes are still high, there's, st there's so many loopholes that big companies wind up paying no taxes or maybe even negative taxes uh, when they turn a profit. The foremost political objective of the 1% today is to maintain and extend this system of low taxes for themselves. That's really the nut behind almost everything that they do. Um, one thing that they have to do to accomplish this is to prevent the state from spending more money on the elderly because this population's rising, uh, it's inevitable, and so you have a kind of a clash here, a basic clash. Uh, the 1% don't want to have to be the ones to foot the bill when the cost of paying for the elderly rises. So their objective is to shift the burden of old age spending from the social collectivity, which would be us, uh, onto working households. Uh, in other words, what's known as the 99%. Uh, the problem is that many of the 99% can't afford to shoulder the whole responsibility of caring for the aged members of their extended families. So this is the basic conflict. You've got one small group who can pay and don't want to, and you've got a larger group that can't pay, period. Uh, the first group exercises tremendous political power. The second can exercise tremendous political power, can exercise it when they're aroused. And that's really the story that I tell in this book. Uh, and that's why every few years during the period that I cover in the People's Pension, we hear a new set of alarms about a social security crisis. Uh, grassroots groups, which includes labor unions, community organizers, uh, advocates for the elderly, have to fight it off. Uh, what I've tried to tell, the story of what I tell in this book, um, is how this dynamic has played out in American politics over the last 30 years or so. Um, I'm hoping you'll want to read the book for yourselves, but I'll try and give you sort of a thumbnail sketch tonight 
um, starting with how Social Security works. I think what I'm going to do with this next couple of sentences is the shortest description on record of how Social Security works. So see if it actually makes sense in like 30 seconds from now. Um, the way it works is you pay payroll tax, and that's, that's part of the FICA line on your paycheck, if you get a paycheck. Uh, and that's used to cover, basically to pay out three types of benefits. There's old age benefits, which is what you get when you're in your 60s and you start to claim Social Security. But there's also survivor's benefits and disability benefits. Now, whatever's left over each year after these three types of benefits are paid out, goes into a trust fund, which is invested in U.S. Treasury bonds, which collect interest from the federal government. Uh, the trust fund's there to make sure that there's enough uh, money to pay benefits if current payroll taxes aren't enough. So that's basically how it works. That's understood? Okay. Great. Um, now, Social Security, what does Social Security do, though? Social Security keeps 20 million people every year out of poverty. 20 million people, that's like, you know, 5% of the population, something like that, out of poverty. Uh, in fact, it's the most successful anti-poverty program in U.S. history. Two-thirds of that, go, that money goes to the elderly. And like I said, that's what we usually refer to when we say Social Security. The rest goes to the disabled and the survivors, um, which is not a lot of money. Uh, a lot of people don't know it, but Social Security, by some estimates, is the most effective program in the country for reducing childhood poverty. Uh, that's, and that's, just, that's less than a third of what Social Security pays out every year. Okay? You know who this is? This is Paul Ryan. He's one of the most conservative members of Congress, and he's pushed very hard to cut Social Security over the years. He's introduced a series of budgets that would, uh, that would aim, that aim to basically destroy Medicare as we know it and put Social Security on a path to being privatized. Uh, but Paul Ryan, in fact, um, admits that he used his survivor's benefits from Social Security to help keep himself in school after his parents died. So. That gives you a little idea of how pervasive this thing is. Um, Interesting. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, Social Security pays very modest benefits. Um, it replaces about 37% of the average worker's pre-retirement income at 65. Uh, more than 95% of people who get Social Security get less than $2,000 a month from the program. Uh, Social Security is actually one of the stingiest old age benefit programs in the industrialized world. Almost every other industrialized country has a system that's more generous than Social Security. Uh, and yet we're constantly being told by Washington uh, that Social Security is too generous, that it's going bankrupt, um, Ryan has basically tried to cut Social Security every single year as part of this fiscal blueprint he keeps introducing, uh, which means that Basically, cutting Social Security is a basic part of the pro, uh, platform that the Republicans run on each year. Uh, on the other side of the coin, Social Security is a key support for the American middle class, not just for low-income people. Uh, preserving social protections like Social Security is even a concern of the Occupy movement. Uh, one of the more interesting photos I ran across when I was re uh, researching this book uh, was a picture of a group of housewives, not elderly people, just people worried about what's going to happen to them when they get old, holding up signs at an occupation, basically an Occupy, Saint, <laughs> Occupy Fort Lauderdale rally in Florida that said, leave Social Security alone. So we thought Occupy was about Wall Street. It was about uh, taking back government. It was about Social Security, among other things. 
On the other hand, we have something that Mitt Romney said recently. He called a society built on entitlements, which is the epithet that critics like to use for Social Security and programs like it. He called it a fundamental corruption of the American spirit. So that was Mitt Romney. Um, I've been collecting a lot of quotes like this. Um, John Tierney, who's a New York Times columnist, uh, once called Social Security a wonderfully intentioned system that in practice promotes greed and sloth. Um, <clears throat> Thomas Saving, who was um, actually a, a trustee of Social Security under the Bush administration, uh, maybe had the best quote of all, uh, because whether or not he knew it, he was channeling General Westmoreland from the Vietnam War days. He said, strange as it sounds, we must destroy the Social Security system as we know it in order to save it. Uh, so all this stuff comes up at least once a year on the American political calendar because of the annual report that's issued by the Social Security trustees. Uh, the latest one came out in April, and they calculate, the, basically what they do is they calculate the cost of Social Security over 75 years. And when they see a shortfall at the end of 75 years, we're told that Social Security is in crisis and that it has to be cut in order to save it. Uh, progressive Democrats in Congress uh, then step up to defend Social Security, and they fight for attention in the corporate media. They usually don't get very much, but up until now, they've been able to beat back these sort of regular attacks that, that happen on Social Security. Um, the big news in the trustees' report this year was that Social Security will be insolvent three years earlier than was previously estimated in 2033 instead of 2036. Now, what does this mean, all these numbers? Uh, it means that the trust fund will be used up. And there won't be enough money to pay full benefits unless Congress votes to chip in some extra money. Uh, predictably, there are a lot of scare stories in the media about this. But a couple of things to keep in mind. These are estimates, they're projections, and they depend on whether historical trends continue pretty much as they have. If they don't, then the projections aren't worth very much. Uh, for instance, that year of insolvencies bounced around a lot. Um, over the last couple of decades, between 2029 and 2042. Um, and uh, if nothing was done, what it really means is that if nothing was done, Social Security would run out of its trust fund in 2033. It would only be able to pay 75% of benefits um, unless Congress decided to vote it more money or raise payroll taxes or some combination of the two. Uh, again, this is a projection, it can change. Um, but what does it really mean uh, that Social Security has a shortfall, is projected to have a shortfall? What does that really mean? Um, well, it means that it's going to cost us some money, like I said at the beginning. Uh, inevitably, it'll cost us more money to support the elderly, it'll cost us more money to keep Social Security going. Um, but let's put this in perspective a little bit. That same Social Security trustees report estimated that the annual cost of benefits will rise gradually from 4 .4, about 4 to 5% of GDP, in other words, of the whole economy, uh, by 2035, uh, decline, uh, up to about 6%. It'll decline to, from about 6.2 to 6.6% 6 by 2050, and then it'll remain at that level for about as long as they could predict. So we're talking about a very small fraction of the whole economy is actually used to support Social Security. An even smaller fraction would be represented by any kind of shortfall that Congress would have to make up. Uh, but the key point about all of this, again, is we don't know. 
We don't really know. All these are our projections. Um, all kinds of things can happen. The one thing we do know, or we can be pretty sure about, is that people are going to keep on aging. The elderly are probably going to keep living longer. And people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s today will probably need the benefits that Social Security provides even more than current retirees do. Because other things that people used to rely on for retirement are eroding. Pay raises, there haven't really been any, there hasn't really been a pay raise for American workers for the better part of the last four decades. Real wages in the United States have been stagnating for most of that time. Um, home equity, an awful lot of people's home equity was destroyed by the 2008 crash, which a lot of people Hey, cat. Uh, we're expecting to help them provide for their retirement. Private pensions are disappearing. Uh, personal savings and, and 401k plans, IRAs, those types of accounts uh, are not adequate to make up for what people uh, would, would lose if Social Security was to, was to erode. So Social Security is more important than ever, and it's going to be more important to people who are, who are younger workers today. Um, a major reason that I wrote this book was to figure out why the challenges that working people face, the fact that we need Social Security more rather than less, and the erosion of retirement benefits in, that come from other sources, uh, why that gets so much less attention in Washington uh, than these solvency projections, which are inherently uncertain, inherently uh, 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 very iffy. Um, you know, why, why, does the, why does the political discussion go that way? Uh, what I found in my research was a whole series of basic misunderstandings about how Social Security works and who benefits from it. All right, here's... Um, this is a cover uh, from the New Republic. This was, uh, I think it was April 1988. Um, one of the basic misunderstandings that runs through the whole period that I cover in the book is the way pundits and right-wing politicians and even a lot of ostensibly progressive politicians have caricatured the elderly as greedy geezers marching out of their gated communities to rob the younger generations, uh, like Night of the Living Dead or something here. Um, yeah, th this was the first time that phrase greedy geezers um, appeared uh, that I know of. Uh, it was used um, very recently by Alan Simpson, who's an ex-senator, who was appointed by Obama to head a fiscal commission that recommended cuts in Social Security. And he was saying this on television recently, that, that, that we're afflicted by greedy geezers who are trying to take all the money that should be spent on the young, as if there was a sort of a zero-sum equation there. Um, but you know this this image. I mean, let me just say that that it's not true, and it's never been true. Um, more than a third of Americans over 65 are poor. Are today are poor or near poor. About half of all Social Security recipients depend on it for their entire incomes. And again, about $2,000 a month we're talking. So the image that we see here um, is is fallacious. It's it's. Uh, uh, something that we've been, uh, sort of a bill of goods that's been sold to us over a period of about 30 years. I mean, at one point in my book, I refer to this as a sort of a kulturkampf. It's like a cultural war, not just sort of a political war, but a kind of a cultural war to, to basically create a kind of, a kind of a feeling of antagonism between younger Americans and older Americans. Um, uh, you know, 
A report that just came out from Meals on Wheels found that the risk of hunger Amer among Americans over 60 has gone up 78% since 2001, even though it's mostly gone down for the population as a whole. So these people are not getting rich on the rest of us. So, all right, if I've established that, um, the other big misunderstanding that I run across, uh, which is related to this, is that Social Security is going broke. Um, Social Security probably faces some funding challenges, but they're pretty modest and they can all be taken care of without cutting benefits. Um, uh, what I concluded was that a lot of the proposals for saving Social Security that are repeated over and over again in the corporate media, reducing benefits over time, turning it into private accounts, are really just evasions of the larger issue that, that America is aging. Um, now that's not a fashionable Part of the problem is that's not a fashionable position to take these days in Washington if you want to be part of the in crowd there. Uh, the fashionable position to take is to believe that government can't do anything right, that institutions like Social Security that provide benefits collectively are unaffordable and outmoded, uh, and that anyone who defends them is a dinosaur who's standing in the way of progress. And that's pretty much what anyone who defends Social Security is treated like in the media and in Washington these days. Um, all of which made me want to understand Social Security on a deeper level, why the idea of it seems to make so many powerful people so angry. Um, what I found out from writing people's pension is that the Social Security debate is actually a lot deeper and more profound than I thought. Um, I realized this when I began to look at the prehistory of the program. Uh, between the years when the idea of something like Social Security was first being thought about and the election of Ronald Reagan, which is the beginning of the story that I discuss in the book. Um, surprisingly enough, because we're taught to think of it primarily as a government program, Social Security's real origins are in 19th century anarchism and specifically in the idea of mutual aid. Um, now, what's mutual aid? Um, mutual aid is basically any kind of a system where a group of people get together and pool their money to provide benefits for each other or provide um, contingencies, provide for contingencies they may face. Um, you know, back in the 19th century, that included uh, industrial workers getting together to provide burial benefits, survivors' benefits for their widows and orphans. Um, and it was something that existed outside of government. Um, mutual aid's always existed in some form. Uh, I'm going to show you three slides now of some dead European white males. So if you find that if you find that interesting, but or if it's boring, just just keep listening to me. Um, uh, mutual aid was a basically it's always existed in some form, but it was an especially powerful force in working people's lives in the early decades of the industrial age. Um, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, who was the first self-described anarchist, uh, was also the first thinker to articulate mutual aid as a, a method of organization for society as a whole back in the mid-19th century. He got there by observing how working people coped with the new industrial society in Paris, where they worked for low wages, could be fired at any time, and they had no social security, social services, or social safety net. Um, they had to band together to provide these things for themselves, especially for old age. Uh, one, way, one way they did this was through what were known as lodges or friendly societies or mutual aid societies like the Freemasons or the Elks. Um, these grew up alongside labor unions, uh, sometimes together with them, and they existed in just about every industrialized country by the early 20th century. Uh, they provided health care, they paid for funerals, they provided orphans and widows benefits. 
uh, out of membership dues. And they were so successful at providing cheap health care in this country that the AMA tried for many years to make it illegal for them to do so. Uh, by 1902, as many as one in three adults in this country, American uh, adult males, was a member of a lodge or fraternity. And in the black community, they were especially important, uh, some, close to 40% of uh, uh, working uh, African-American males belonged to some kind of fraternal society by the early 20th century. Uh, Proudhon saw mutual aid societies as a seed for an entirely new way of organizing an economy. So you could say that the essence of anarchism was basically mutual aid. Um, a second strand was happening about the same time. Uh, democratic socialists were devising ways to create a state-run equivalent of mutual aid. And the originator of this idea was Ferdinand LaSalle, who was German, and he was a founder of one of the parties that eventually formed the Social Democratic Party in Germany that we have today. And he called it social insurance. And the idea of social insurance was analogous to insurance you'd buy from a private company. Everybody was required to make contributions to a common fund. Uh, that was then used to pay out benefits to retirees or the disabled or widows and orphans. Only it was instituted and controlled by the state instead of by some organization that workers controlled themselves. Um, the idea was to create solidarity between classes and between generations. But another way to look at it was that by translating mutual aid into social insurance, political leaders like LaSalle we're rewriting it in financial terms. Money comes in, money goes out, so that instead of replacing the capitalist system, it could assume a place within the capitalist system. Um, idea of social insurance caught on as a way to strengthen industrial peace and dampen revolutionary impulses in the masses. Germany was the first country to institute state-run uh, workers' comp and pensions under Otto von Bismarck, who was a chancellor of Germany. Bismarck was very explicit about why he was doing this. In a statement he attached to the 1881 legislation that created the first ever government-run workers' comp program, he wrote the following, that the state should interest itself to a greater degree than hitherto in those of its members who need assistance is not only a duty of humanity and Christianity, but a duty of state-preserving policy. These classes must be led to regard the state not as an institution contrived for the protection of the better classes of society, but as one serving their own needs and interests. The apprehension that a socialistic element might be introduced into this legislation if this end were followed should not check us. Um, so that was Bismarck about 130-something years ago. Um, the Bismarckian model was very successful for a long time. Uh, it was so successful that social insurance came to be regarded as a German idea. Um, the International Association for Labor Legislation, which was a group of scholars that was set up in the late 19th century to sort of promote the idea of social insurance, uh, was funded partially by the German government. And so when its American affiliate, the American Association for Labor Legislation, started pushing the idea of a national health care, national health care insurance program during the early days of World War I, they were accused of being part of a German plot to weaken American capitalism. So it's all pretty crazy. Um, Social Security finally came into being in the U.S. during the Depression, uh, when almost two-thirds of elderly people were unemployed. Families were in crisis, uh, having to take in elderly members who they couldn't afford to support in order to keep them off the street. Um, and a huge outcry arose over this. Um, we're taught, usually in the history books, that FDR 
created social sec uh, security as a part of the New Deal, but in reality it was actually his response to an enormous mass movement called the Townsend Clubs, which were, or which were organized to demand that the government supply a guaranteed income for the elderly. Um, it's interesting to look at some of the early propaganda that was put out when Social Security was set up the first thing they needed to do was to get everybody to sign up for it. And people did that through their employers. And so the, the government uh, sponsored a sort of a, a vast PR campaign in the late 30s to get everybody to go and sign up with their employer for Social Security. And um, the, 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 the way they did this, the kind of the messages that were sent were fascinating. Uh, this poster says, join the march to old age security. And you see this kind of like march of working people, you know, coming to get their social security. So it kind of played on this idea of, of um, the mass movement, which was, which was there to demand something like social security be set up. Um, there was another set of posters that said more security for the American family, so that you get this idea social security is about family values. It's about helping the elderly, the widows, um, and the orphans, uh, survivors. So. You know, on the one hand, you get this, they, they play on this idea of social solidarity. On the other hand, they play on this more conservative idea of the family and, you know, helping. This is something that's, that's going to help the family. Um, but even though Social Security owed its existence to a radical populist mass movement, what we got instead, what, what, did, what was the actual thing? What was the actual organization we got? Um, it was a fairly conservative program that requires you to work. Uh, in the above ground economy in order to earn benefits. And Social Security is run by professional bureaucrats rather than by a more democratic structure that would, that would have empowered the mass movement that willed Social Security into being. Um, in spite of that, there was fierce opposition to it uh, from the right, you know, right from the beginning. Um, just like Obamacare today, Social Security was, was um, argued all the way to the Supreme Court, which finally decided that the government did have the right to tax people to support Social Security. It's very, very similar arguments to the ones we're hearing this week in the Supreme Court. Uh, the opposition to Social Security became, uh, uh, has become even stronger over the last 30 years uh, when the country started to swing to the right in the Reagan era. Uh, one thing you'll learn in the book, by the way, um, is that every president since Jimmy Carter has tried at one time or another to cut Social Security. That includes Democrats as well as Republicans, and it also includes Barack Obama. Um, Reagan, of course, was the first one who proposed major cuts in Social Security. That was in 1981. Uh, and he nearly agreed to a, a deal with Senate Republican leaders in 1985 to cut Social Security again. Uh, each time he had to back down. Um, George Bush the first tried to cut the cost of living increases for Social Security recipients. He was forced to drop that from his plans. Bill Clinton came within an ace of making a deal with Newt Gingrich to cut Social Security in 1997, and they kept pursuing it even after the Monica Lewinsky scandal overtook Clinton, uh, something I discovered in the course of researching the book, even while that was going on. For a solid year after the scandal broke, they were trying behind the scenes to make a deal to cut Social Security. Uh, George Bush II assembled a commission to develop a privatization plan in 2001. Uh, then he took it on the road to sell it in 2005. The public hated it and he had to abandon it. Uh, I'll just I'll point out what's going on in this photo. 
Uh, Bush did a really amazing photo op in the course of his campaign to push privatization in 2005. Uh, he wanted to show that the trust fund does not really exist, that the trust fund is really just a bunch of IOUs. So he went to the Social Security office in West Virginia where they keep the treasury bonds that make up the trust fund. And you see he's, what he's got here is this binder which includes the, the, the actual bonds, the, the paper certificates that they issue. And he's standing here and he's basically saying, you see, it's just a bunch of people, uh, pieces of paper, it's IOUs, it's not real, these are not real, this is not real money. Uh, he was denounced in the New York Times for uh, spreading a rumor that Social Security didn't exist. Uh, and it was pointed out pretty correctly that if those bonds don't exist, then what are those bonds that sit in the Bank of China's vaults? Does that yeah. not exist either? So, didn't work. Shorter story, it didn't work. And, and Bush's opposition to Social Security was a disaster. It led directly to the Republicans' loss of Congress in 2006. And it played a major role in the defeat of the Republicans in 2008. Um, that said, uh, the it's, it's very well established that the public hates the idea of privatizing Social Security, but it keeps coming up over and over again. Obama last year almost made a deal with John Boehner, the Republican House Speaker, to cut the index used to compute benefits, which would have led to a major cut in Social Security over time, especially for younger workers. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid, the Democratic congressional leaders, were ready to go along with it. Uh, progressive Democrats in Congress opposed it, but it was actually the Tea Party caucus that stopped it from happening uh, because they didn't think it went far enough. Um, Ezra Klein, who's a Washington Post blogger, said at the time correctly that the reality is that liberals should be sending House Republican Majority Leader Eric Cantor a fruit basket. It's increasingly clear that he has saved them from a deal they'd hate. Uh, so this is how the crazy politics works. <clears throat> so the question is, why do so many people on the right and the center right uh, hate Social Security? Well, the original sin of Social Security for them is that because it's a social insurance program, it combines several things into one package that conservatives hate to see put together in the same place. Social Security is a type of insurance. It guarantees, that every, it guarantees everyone that they'll have at least a base income in their old age, even if they lose everything else. It's also a forced savings program, which means that some money is taken out of your paycheck to provide a pension for you, even if you don't save anything else. And third, Social Security is an income redistribution program, which means that lower income workers get proportionately larger benefits than upper income people do. Social Security, like, or rather, conservatives like to call Social Security a false savings system uh, and a welfare program in disguise. But the way it's set up is also extremely clever politically because it pays, Social Security pays something to everybody at every income level. Uh, people at every income level support it as a result. If Social Security was pure welfare without a payroll tax and only offering benefits to people in need, it would probably now be well on its way to being phased out because that's what happens to welfare programs in this country in this day and age. Um, the way it's set up instead, with its own dedicated tax, it's more than just a government program. It's something that working people own because they paid into it. It's a form of generational solidarity because each generation is protected and in turn owes an obligation to the one that came before it. And it's a collective protection, something we provide to each other, even if we could afford to do without it. So in that sense, 
Social Security still retains a lot of the characteristics of mutual aid as it was first conceived in the 19th century by people like Proudhon. Um, the structure that FDR put in place has been fairly bulletproof for a long time because of this. Uh, <clears throat> and the interesting thing about the people's pension is that after 30 years of attacks, Social Security still hasn't been phased out or privatized. A big part of the story that I tell in the book is about this coalition of unions, elderly activists like the Grey Panthers, women's groups, grassroots organizations that based in low-income communities and communities of color that come together that have come together again and again to defend Social Security when it's when it's being threatened uh, and resurrecting. Uh, repeatedly the New Deal Great Society Coalition that created the American welfare state and that everybody seems to think is dead. In reality, it comes to life every time Social Security is threatened. Uh, and the people behind this are the real heroes of the story. That's why the cover of the book shows a rally to protect Social Security. The one you see here was a rally that was held in 1981 by the National Alliance of Senior Citizens when Reagan was trying to cut Social Security. Um, and the cover of the book, one of the one of the placards you see on the cover of the book is very interesting. It, it, it says, security not a safety net. In other words, secu social security is not a safety net. It's an earned benefit. It's something we own and we earned ourselves. It's not something that's done uh, by, the, by the grace of politicians who are, just, who are trying to help us out uh, in a kind of a charitable way. It's something we own, something we paid for. Um, Unfortunately, the fact that Social Security is still standing is only part of the picture. <clears throat> the last time a major revision was made in Social Security was in 1983. Uh, not surprisingly, Reagan was involved. And the deal included gradually raising the retirement age from 65 to 67, which results in a 12.5% uh, cut in benefits for younger workers. If you're under the age of... Um, if you're over the age of, sorry, if you're over the age of 45 today, you'll retire, you'll be able to collect full Social Security benefits at 67, not 65. Um, the real, again, 12.5% drop in benefits for younger workers. <clears throat> the real tragedy of the story that I tell in this book uh, is that Social Security has essentially been frozen in place for more than 30 years uh, now. 1983 was the last time a major change was made in the system. The last time a major major improvement was made in Social Security was in 1972. Um, there are a whole host of ways in which uh, Social Security is not kept up with people's changing needs because of this continuing circular debate that we have about whether Social Security will be solvent 30 or 75 years from now. Uh, and the if there's a rule in, in government, a rule in politics, it's that social institutions have to respond to people's evolving needs or they become irrelevant and they die. And so that's the path that Social Security may be on if, it's, if, if it doesn't become a program that can be improved and extended once again. Um, here are some of the things that Social Security hasn't kept up with. <clears throat> Benefits for widows and divorcees are not adequate. The minimum benefit for people who spend most or all of their career in very low-wage jobs, which is a growing number of people today, is too close to the poverty line. 
Same-sex couples don't get spousal benefits, neither do opposite-sex unmarried couples for that matter. Um, there's actually now a Social Security Equality Act in Congress that would change this for LGBT folks, and uh, that's something that's, that, that's on the back burner, but there is a bill in Congress that would do that, basically grant Social Security benefits to spouses of uh, same-sex couples. Uh, thanks to Ronald Reagan, uh, survivor benefits uh, are cut off at, the, at college age instead of extending through college, which is what the way the system worked before. Uh, and that, that actually, there was something like 200,000 people who were 18, 19, 20, 21 years old who lost benefits uh, back in 1983 when that rule change happened. And like I said earlier, the benefits under Social Security for everybody are still very stingy by the standards of other industrialized countries. Uh, but because Washington focuses so obsessively on insolvency of Social Security, these issues are rarely discussed in American politics. Instead, we get doomsday scenarios. Um, one of my favorite covers from my, one of my favorite publications, this was <laughs> Weekly World News in 1995. Um, you know, but we, but this is what we get. The, 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 uh, and you can get this on a T-shirt if you if you contact them. Uh, I, I have one, um, but the, no, no, I don't have it tonight, or I would have worn it. Um, like I said, this is the sort of the tragic side of this is, that instead of getting some intelligent discussion of how we can improve Social Security, what we get is doomsday scenarios, and we get sort of crazy ideas about what's going to happen because most people don't understand Social Security very well in terms of how it works. Um, uh, so uh, thanks to some factors we talked about earlier, collapsing home prices, wage stagnation, disappearance of employer-based pensions, a lot of the gains that people uh, 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 made thanks to Social Security in the last few decades are being eroded. More than 34% of Americans over 65 today, like I said, are either poor or near poor. Um, and uh, it's important to remember that cuts in Social Security that are described as modest or technical uh, could actually throw millions of people into destitution. Uh, yet this trade-off is almost never discussed in the stories that appear in the media about the Social Security debate. Uh, check out the ne next time you see a, um, a story in one of the major dailies about Social Security and how Social Security is approaching bankruptcy. Look and see if you see anything in that story about what would happen if the benefits were cut? What would actually happen to people if the benefits were cut? That's never discussed. Um, healthcare costs for retirees are skyrocketing. There's a growing need for affordable long-term care for the very elderly that's not being filled. Uh, it's not covered adequately by Medicare or Medicaid, and it's too expensive for most people to buy. More and more families today are in what's known as the sandwich generation, which means that they're bringing up young children and trying to pay for their education at the same time, taking care of very old family members. Um, trying to do this on two salaries. The squeeze is already bad and it's going to get worse. Uh, a lot of the modest cuts in Social Security that conservative and center-right politicians like to push are moderate only because they leave current retirees more or less alone, uh, instead slamming the next generation of retirees. Um, so what are the changes that Social Security's critics propose to improve it? There are three that are repeated over and over in, wa in the Washington echo chamber these days. I like to call them collectively the beast with three heads. First, there's raising the retirement age. 
which was result in much lower benefit payments over a lifetime for most people. Second, there's cutting benefits for upper income people, what's known as means testing. And third, there's switching to a, a stingier formula when benefits are calculated for people when they retire. Now, what's wrong with these ideas, which you hear over and over again these days in the media? Uh, well, means testing would tend to make more affluent people less interested in supporting Social Security because there wouldn't be as much in it for them. Raising the retirement age, changing the retirement, changing the benefit formula, uh, these would phase down the benefits drastically over several decades so that by the time people are in their 20s and 30s today are ready to retire, Social Security wouldn't do much to keep them out of poverty. So the next time you hear a politician or a media pundit talk about the urgent need to trim Social Security or Medicare because they can't afford it, listen carefully. Do they say anything at all about whether elderly people or their families can afford those cuts. Can you afford those cuts looking down the road? Most likely the answer is no, but again, this is not discussed in Washington. Um, there are some uh, positive signs. Uh, one is the Social Security Equality Act that I mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, some progressive groups and lawmakers like Bernie Sanders and Tom Harkin in the Senate have been pushing other ideas for improving Social Security as well, what, such as awarding benefits based on years that workers take off to care for children or for aging relatives. Right now, if you take time off from work to do those things, you're out of luck. That's, that's, those are years you're not earning any benefits. Um, this would make political sense because it changes the conversation from how to cut the cost of Social Security to how to make Social Security better for the people who pay for it and depend on it. Um, as for the solvency question, there's ways to uh, make the numbers work better to make sure that Social Security's books balance in the future without slashing benefits. Uh, the main one is to raise the payroll tax threshold so that higher income people pay more in taxes to support the system. Uh, or payroll tax taxes could be gradually raised for everyone, but so slowly that it wouldn't uh, cut into their purchasing power. Uh, the, the solution that I like best is simply to ignore the numbers game completely and instead spend more money on education, job creation, social, uh, social services, so that the US will have a more prosperous workforce in the future that's better able to support programs like Social Security. The biggest reason that Social Security has a numbers shortfall these days is, is the fact that Americans haven't really had much of a pay raise in the last 40 years. Give them a pay raise, that means more payroll taxes paid in, we're better able to support Social Security. But there's a common denominator to all of the approaches that I just ran through, which is that they all involve raising taxes. And even though, uh, and, and in fact, poll after poll shows that Americans actually, when they're asked, would you be willing to pay more in payroll tax, for example, if it would, it would guarantee that you'll get your Social Security? Comfortable majorities always say yes, but in Washington, it's not politically correct to talk about raising taxes. Um, so uh, that's one thing we can do, and that's the political sort of you know, dead end that we've reached. Um, but I also think that the Social Security discussion needs to move in a new direction, and one that's less tied to the usual Washington politics. The basic flaw in the Social Security discussion that we've been hearing for 30 years is that it takes place mostly outside of any reference to the economy that it's part of. And both 
conservatives and liberals are guilty of this. Conservatives think of Social Security as just another part of our out-of-control government. Liberals think of Social Security as part of government too. Just, it's just a kinder and gentler New Deal type government that helps people. Um, I think what we knew, need to do is to change the focus and instead look back to the origins of Social Security and 19th century mutual aid. In other words, tr stop trying to distance Social Security from its fundamental radicalism. If you think of Social Security as a form of mutual aid, even though it's run by the government, then Social Security isn't just a government program. It belongs to the people who pay for it and derive benefits. They should run it, not the government. The basic flaw in Social Security, in fact, in all of the New Deal social programs, the welfare, American welfare state, is that it never found a role for the mass movement that demanded the benefits it provides in the first place. The result is a very effective program that succeeded in lifting the vast majority of elderly Americans out of poverty. Now that worked until the 70s and 80s when the political dynamic in this country changed and started to move to the right. But even if in its heyday, uh, this left most people without a strong understanding of or personal connection to Social Security. Social Security was just this money that came out of your paycheck and then some money that you were paid after you turned 65. But the mechanics of it, who ran it, what it's there for, that was not always very well understood. Uh, which is why conservatives could ask, semi-plausibly, ask people if they might not be benefit if they owned their benefits through personal investment accounts when in fact people already own social security but as a collective possession not a personal one and that's where things get muddled social security needs to be democratized instead of uh, one idea uh, that, that that's come up is instead of investing the social security trust fund in treasury bonds which means that it's invested in everything the government does from highways to imperialist wars in the Middle East. It could be used to build a new economy that prioritizes social well-being rather than tax revenue generating corporate profits. If Social Security was run in a democratic way, uh, people who were elected by the, the people who put money into Social Security could invest the money directly into the economy. Uh, instead of being run as a big pool and collectively invested in activities of government, Social, Secu Social Security could be changed so that the trust form could form a network of social investment trusts. These could be run by uh, a, a, a collaboration of cooperative groups, including credit unions, autonomous collectives, labor unions, consumer groups. The cooperatives could use the funds to develop sustainable agricultural industrial economies on a regional, local, or even a neighborhood level. The proceeds could be used to support health care, housing, and a guaranteed adequate income for the elderly. So, so Social Security could be decentralized. Does, there's no reason it has to be run as a sort of a monolithic trust fund by government without much in, direct input from the people. It could become part of creating a new, uh, more sustainable economy. Interestingly enough, this is actually what some of Social Security's founders had in mind back in the 30s. Um, Arthur Altmaier, who was the first commissioner of Social Security, uh, talked of investing the trust funds in, quote, social undertakings such as low-income housing, schools, hospitals, and even in manufacturing that could be justified from the point of view of social welfare. Let me repeat that last phrase, manufacturing that could be justified from the point of view of social welfare. Now, that's a long way from the kind of bureaucratic model of government agencies that arose out of the New Deal, but it's not too far from the kind of democratized uh, 
uh, vision that I think is part of um, Occupy Wall Street, for example, and its offshoots. Um, it's the only way to create, and I think it's the only way to create a kind of a countervailing vision to the market-based ownership society ideal that conservatives push and that the Democratic Party center-right is generally okay going along with. Uh, if not, if, if something like this can't be realized, then we have a big if, which is what uh, my book concludes with. Politically, we're pretty far in this country from this kind of sustainable economy model that I've just described. And unlike in the FDR era, I don't think there's much chance that Washington is going to get there. But the Occupy movement, among other things that it's done, has got people thinking again more along these lines, decentralizing power, devolving control of things we need out of the hands of, of the elite. Uh, people still need to figure out cooperative ways to fulfill their needs and desires just as they did in the 19th century, and that includes providing for old age. If anything, it's more urgent than ever given the fact that people live for a longer time and the dismantling of the safety net is proceeding very, very rapidly in this country. Uh, it's quite possible that nothing like this can ever come into being through the state anymore which incidentally is a journey that Occupy is going to have to make if it wants to bring about real change. We may have to do it ourselves. We may have to reinvent social insurance outside the state. Social security in the broadest sense is something people have to invent and reinvent anyway if it's going to continue to be viable. Uh, we don't have to work with the, within the parameters of government to do it. So that's kind of the if it's not a vision, it's at least the direction I think we need to start thinking about going in. And so I'll leave it at that and see if after all of this there's any questions. Okay. No questions? Yeah. So in terms of like artists and stuff like mm -hmm. that, those who don't have like a employer per se, how is, historically, how is Social Security, you know, dealt with that and then Moving forward, like I, I envision some sort of like collective situation, sort of like the mutual aid, you know, lodges and stuff like that, mm -hmm. uh, allowing them like when they have money to pay into it or mm -hmm. you know what you know what have you. But what do you say? Or what what's the history with that? And well, forward. yeah, I mean, as far as as far as artists and people who are not sort of traditionally employed, um, I mean, if you if you are self-employed uh, or a freelance, then um, you still pay into Social Security. It's just you pay both portions of it. There's an employer and an employee contribution that are made to Social Security. If you're self-employed, like I am, you pay both of those. So instead of 6.2% of my paycheck, I pay 12.4% of it. So that's how it works if you're not traditionally employed. Uh, if in the Yeah, but you're still in the above-ground economy. Um, if you if you work entirely off the books, you're not part of Social Security. That's why 95% of the population is in Social Security, takes part in it in some way, either getting benefits or paying into it. But there's still that portion that works off the books. And that is maybe where you can start to think about, okay, what are we supposed to do about this? Uh, I suspect, I don't have any numbers, more and more people are working off the books these days because uh, the employment situation for so many people has gotten so lousy. So many people are working in low-income jobs their whole lives that it becomes very tempting to work off the books and maybe make a little more money. Uh, but the downside of that uh, I know I have a friend uh, actually who's been working this way her entire life. She's 65. Uh, she has no social security. 
just gonna, and, and she recently got divorced. She's going to have to keep working. So those are the trade-offs. Um, as far as... Uh, How do you provide mutual aid in that system, you know, in that instance, you know? Well, you know, there's uh, I'll, I'll, the, the most basic form of mutual aid comes from the family, and the number of multi-generational families in this country is rising rapidly. A lot of that has to do with elderly people or, or older workers who can't find work, who are having to move in with their children or are being subsidized, and, and that's happening too. That's happening too. Uh, there are... Uh, uh, there's sort of a myth, again, the greedy geezer myth. Uh, it's partly a myth because grandparents spend, uh, there's, there are figures on this, spend a tremendous amount of money uh, helping grandchildren who are paying off college debts, helping uh, their children who are swamped by mortgages or their, housing, their houses are underwater. Um, there's actually a lot of mutual aid that takes place on a very basic level in this country. And it's a matter, that's why I think it's a matter of building that out of recognizing that that more and more is what we're going to have to depend on and building it out. What about extending it to uh, groups like teachers that don't typically participate in Social Security? They have their own pension plan. Yeah. Isolated. TIA CREF. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. TIA CREF works pretty well. I'm... I'm CalPERS. CalPERS. Colorado has it. California yeah. has teachers. It's completely separate. They don't even mm -hmm. pay any Social Security. Well, uh, you may have noticed that there's a kind of a political war against public pensions going on right now. Yeah, except yeah. police and fire. Uh, even, even police and fire in some places are under attack now, and they used to be politically untouchable, so that's how far it's gone. Um, about a third of public employees in this country are not in Social Security. Um, Two-thirds of public employees have pensions and they have Social Security. About a third of them don't. And those people are, gonna, are in a real emergency if, if their benefits are cut. Uh, so there is a, there is a need uh, for some kind of, some kind of overarching uh, uh, social insurance system that, that everybody can be assured of being part of. Um, the, the, the Townsend plan, which was the plan for old age income that was uh, put about in the 30s and that scared the hell out of Roosevelt and other uh, sort of establishment politicians, actually would have paid a guaranteed benefit to everybody over 65, uh, 200 and something dollars a month, which was a fair amount back then, uh, it didn't matter whether you worked a day in your life. You got it because you were that age, and you, would, you were required to spend every penny of it in the next month before you got any more money. Because part of the idea was to put money back into the economy and get it, and get it circulating against the scared people to death instead in Washington. Yeah, instead of austerity. Um, uh, you know, uh, the idea that, uh, that just because you're an elderly person you can't work would entitle you to some kind of a benefit was considered outrageous. Um, these days, uh, and that's one of the reasons I think that, that the idea of decentralizing Social Security makes some sense. Because if you, if you put control of it, or some degree of control of it back on the local level, uh, then it's harder to ignore your neighbors who need help. On the national level, it's very easy. So uh, I hope that, that answers that a little bit. Any other questions? Yeah. Some of the prescriptions you're describing, I think, are sort of consciousness changing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And certainly seem to be in a stale atmosphere for consciousness in general. Um, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of other things mm -hmm. that are existing in our country. So, you know, I think a lot about 
a lot of good description of what are the triggers that actually raise consciousness to the point where we can talk about solutions like you're talking about. Well, yeah. Well, uh, one of those one of those triggers is uh, the, the the trigger that really got Social Security passed, and there were about 25 years worth of efforts to create some kind of a national retirement system in this country before Social Security was eventually passed. But the thing that really got it going was mass unemployment, mass need among the elderly, and a mass movement that was pushing something very very radical, namely the Townsend Plan. And at that point, the government had to come across with something. Um, I think, I think that, like I say, I think the political climate has changed. I don't think that it's it's as possible to get government to do something like that anymore, um, and that has a lot to do with things like the like the degree of concentration of wealth and the uh, the the difficulty of getting elected to Congress if you're not a millionaire. Uh, but we're gonna friends. Or, yeah, yeah, or have friends who are. Uh, the, the, but in terms of consciousness, um, I think what has to happen, uh, I, I, it's a really good question because I, I, I hate to say that the answer is people being in even more dire need than they are now, uh, things deteriorating more. But I, I actually think that that may be what's happening. Um, I don't see the safety net, the government restoring the safety net. I personally, I don't see the government um, uh, starting to expand Social Security and turning it into a more dynamic force again. Uh, but I do see uh, a, a rising awareness among people on, on everyday level that there are needs that have to be taken care of and that they're not needs that we can simply do ourselves as rugged individualists. And so that's where maybe the change in consciousness starts to happen. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you came across this in your research, but in 1983, it's a typical meal mm -hmm. in that picture with Reagan. Yeah. Where was he at on some of this stuff and what was, can you break down some what was the politics in that story? Yeah, I spent a couple chapters on that in the book, and it's a fascinating story. Um, Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House. He was a Democrat. And he uh, was, uh, according to people who I've talked to, uh, reliably, um, although he never said so, uh, Tip O'Neill hated Ronald Reagan more than any other human being in the world. Uh, <clears throat> but O'Neill had a... There, there was a particular problem with Social Security in 83, <clears throat> which was a technical problem that had to do with the last time legislation was passed and the fact that there was a very severe recession going on. At the time, Social Security did not have a large trust fund. It was more or less the benefits were paid with whatever came in that year. And Social Security actually did come very close to going bankrupt in 1983. And that had to do with the, with the severity of the 81-82 recession. Um, so something had to be done right away. And a number of things were done to sort of extend the life of the trust fund so that it would cover the period when the baby boomers were starting to enter the workforce. Now, there's, the details of this are not, we don't need to go into, but um, there were proposals made that Social Security need to, needed to be made even more secure. And so one of those ideas was to raise the retirement age. Um, O'Neill opposed raising the retirement age. Reagan supported raising the retirement age. And the Republicans found just enough Democratic support in the House and Senate 
to 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 actually do that. Um, so, uh, but at the time, it was very important. They they literally were weeks away from where they would have where Congress would have had to vote a large sum of money to prop up Social Security. They didn't want to do that. Something had to be passed, and so uh, O'Neill was kind of between a rock and a hard place, and that's where that raising of the retirement age came from, which didn't actually really have to happen. It was not necessary. It was passed anyway, and that was really the beginning of this sort of um, slippery slope that I think we're on now. So that was the dynamic of that. Uh, there's more fun stories about that whole period in the book. Um, yeah, anything else? Yeah. So how did the, how did like the Proudhonists or the, you know, the early anarchists actually met, like get these lodges going or the, this, uh, the Elk Associations, how they, how those, was it like a monthly fee or what, what was the... You paid dues, you paid annual dues. And the interesting thing about those lodges was that they cut across social classes. Um, you know, the Freemasons, everybody knows like the Masons, the Shriners. Um, yeah, uh, back then um, in local communities in smaller cities, for example, it was considered an honor to be, to be a, able to join the Masons. And everybody from the richest banker down to grocery store clerks could join if they were male and they were citizens in good standing and so forth. Um, the result was that there was a kind of a social solidarity element to, to the lodges. Uh, everybody wanted to be a member of them. Interestingly enough, um, there's a little bit of social history. That started to change. Well, and, uh, there were the Freemasons. The Elks were basically set up for traveling salespeople. That was basically what they were. And they provided all of these benefits. There was, uh, there were the, um, uh, there was a group called the Knights of Tobit, which were basically uh, in the African American community. Um, and and it was such a pervasive thing, these lodges, that there was literally a group called the Oddfellows. You still see Oddfellows halls around here and there. There was uh, basically what Oddfellows meant was, I'm not, a, I can't join any other uh, lodge or mutual aid society, so the, the, I can join the Oddfellows. The Oddfellows was there for the odd people out. Um, so it, it literally was something that everybody wanted to be part of. The interesting social history about it is in the 20s, it's the, the system started to erode. And the reason was because the upper middle class was starting to expand in the United States. And uh, some new groups were set up called Kiwanis, Lions Club. And they were, called, they were service organizations. They did not provide benefits. And they were mainly for more affluent people in the community because they could hold fundraisers and do this kind of thing and sort of participate with people on their social level. And so you got fewer and fewer people joining the mutual aid societies because uh, who, who, who had a lot of money. And so more of the people who were in those lodges were people with lower incomes, and that made it harder to provide benefits. Although the interesting thing is in the Depression, during the Depression when everybody was slammed really hard, uh, there are very, very few cases of mutual aid societies or Masonic lodges that didn't honor their benefits promises. It was, these are very solemn sort of compacts, and uh, mutual aid worked very, very well in that respect. Uh, so the, the big problem with mutual aid societies is that there was never an attempt to try to create some kind of an overall grouping or make sure, make sure or turn it into something, turn into something that could be, uh, that could cover more than just 
two-thirds of society that could cover everybody. That's the thing that would have to be worked on. That's the thing that would have to be different these days. But I would argue that there are ways to do it, that there's ways for people to be in touch with each other. The internet is one thing, obviously, they didn't have back then. And that it would be, it, it, it's possible to sort of go beyond some of the limitations of the mutual aid model that we had in those days and, and, and sort of do it in a more kind of uh, thoroughgoing way now. And what would they provide in terms of mutual aid, like in terms of like elderly care and healthcare? Like how did, what did, did they have doctors that they're associated with? Yeah, yeah, the Shriners hospitals. That was a system that was set up back then. Uh, many of these organizations, the Elks and so forth, had hospitals. They literally had their own hospitals. In fact, in Alabama and Mississippi in the early 60s, when, uh, when the civil rights marches were happening and lots of people were getting injured in attacks by the police, uh, the only hospital in those two states that would admit black uh, patients who had been wounded uh, or, or injured during uh, the March on Selma, for example, was a hospital that was run by the Knights of Tobit, who were an African-American mutual aid society. They were the only one that would admit these people from miles and miles away. Uh, so they, they ran hospitals, they provided health care. Burial benefits in the old days were a very, very big thing. Um, you know, uh, survivor's benefits, those, that was kind of, those were kind of the main things. Uh, many of these organizations ran retirement communities of their own, um, you know, uh, commu you know, literally housing projects that were set up for elderly elks and their families, people like that. So it was pretty, you could kind of go cradle to the grave with this, with this stuff. Other questions? Yeah. I saw, what was it, like about a year ago when the AARP sort of said, yes, Social Security needs to be changed? Um, right, right. What's, I guess for lack of anything more articulate, what's up with that? Um, AARP, everybody knows what AARP is, right? Um, AARP, uh, back in the 90s, um, well, actually, interesting, uh, first of all, just, just one little bit of prehistory is that uh, ARP was set up uh, uh, by a woman named Andrus. I forget her first name back in the 50s. She was, she was from Long Beach, California, and she knew t Dr. Townsend, the guy who started the Townsend movement. And so there was, actually a there was actually a connection between sort of the mass movement for elderly benefits and AARP. Um, AARP uh, makes a lot of money selling um, insurance products and prescription drug, generic prescription drugs to people. Um, it's, the, it's one of the largest, um, it's the largest group representing the elderly in this country. And as a result, it's always been kind of played a kind of an ambiguous role in this debate. Um, in 1995, um, Alan Simpson and a group of senators uh, passed a bill that essentially uh, stripped AARP's um, uh, nonprofit status from it so because they because they wanted to defund it. They considered ARP to this be this horrible organization that was that was stalling reform of Social Security, and they wanted to sort of emasculate it. Um, ARP survived, but ARP has been very has, has played a very very kind of equivocal role. Um, in 2005, when Bush was pushing privatization, ARP was solidly against him. But a couple of years earlier, when Bush was uh, passing his prescription drug plan, uh, they supported that too, uh, which 
uh, they lost something like 40,000 members as a result, and that's why they opposed Bush on Social Security. These days, they're trying to they, they've, they're trying to sort of push this idea that well, Social Security has to be something needs to be done, but we're not sure what it is, and um, you know it must be done in such a way that it doesn't hurt current retirees. You know that's all that's part of the coded language you hear around this debate, not mentioning the next generations of retirees. Now ARP. Um, is very susceptible to pr uh, pressure from its members, so it's not clear how far they're going to go. The way I kind of analyze it is that ARP is a very powerful lobbying group, and they like to be part of the discussion. And if they think the discussion in Washington is going to include some kind of change in Social Security, they don't want to oppose it completely because they don't want to X themselves out of that discussion. Uh, so um, ARP sort of has to be kept in line, um, and that's hopefully what will happen. They'll, they will not um, you know, cross the line and start making cuts, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. Where does the union movement come into this whole thing? The union movement has been absolutely vital in keeping Social Security from being cut. Um, interesting thing is that in the early days, um, in the 20s, uh, union movement opposed Social Security because they felt that, maybe prophetically, that for workers to depend on government to provide these benefits was a bad idea because inevitably they would be cut because government is working for the capitalists, not for us. In the 30s, that changed, and, and union movements started to see government as a partner in sort of promoting workers' interests against capitalists. Um, Temporary alliances. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, these days, Social Security is one of the cornerstones, and the, the AFL-CIO, to its credit, recognizes this very well. The AFL-CIO has been absolutely solid against any cuts in Social Security for a long time. Um, and that's that's one among, among many reasons that uh, sort of the 1% is so hostile to the labor movement is because of Social Security, very much because of that issue. Yeah. Other questions? All right. Would you prefer your book be bought at local bookstores or, <laughs> or over the online is the case uh, AK Press versus Amazon? <clears throat> uh, Oh well, yeah, you know, I, I I would say I, I think the the order of succession is is independent local bookstores like this one. Uh, otherwise, AK Press is good. Um, they'll they'll send it to you. Uh, otherwise, um, you know, buy it over Amazon. Give me a little blip in my you know my numbers or whatever. That's that's not bad either. But start with a local bookstore. Start with a local bookstore. I, I want to see loads of copies of, of of the People's Pension in this store like tomorrow. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Well, thank you. you. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Out. All right. No problem. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.